0: From May 23rd to 25th, the Human Rights Foundation's community reunited in Norway for the 2022 Oslo Freedom Forum at the Oslo Konserthus. Guests from all corners of the globe joined together to discuss the year's most pressing human rights issues and to brainstorm new ways to expand freedom worldwide. This year's theme, Champion of Change, represented a strong, scalable call to action for our community, inviting our audience to act and advocate on behalf of activists who are themselves champions and their causes. At the Oslo Freedom Forum, we realize that everyone has the potential to affect change, either as a champion on an individual level or as part of a larger movement. Welcome to Dissidents and Dictators, a series of conversations by the Human Rights Foundation dedicated to exposing and challenging authoritarianism around the world. This episode was recorded during the 2022 Oslo Freedom Forum, a global gathering of activists and dissidents united in standing up to tyranny. Since 2009, individuals have come from across the world to educate, share, and inspire at the Oslo Freedom Forum. You can watch this programming and more on the Oslo Freedom Forum YouTube or Facebook pages.
1: Hi everyone, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, We're thrilled to be here and having this panel discussion. Um, Just a brief introduction to myself before we move on to the incredible panelists that are with me. Um, So my name is Amy Ray, I am the Managing Director of North America for the Freedom Fund. We are a global NGO working to end modern slavery. Um, we do so through identifying and investing in the most impactful frontline organizations. And when I say invest in, I mean that both financially and in supporting them in scaling um, and in networking with one another. I also just want to take a moment to define what we mean when we talk about modern slavery because we are talking about modern slavery today. Um, so when we use that term, uh, think about things that, are, uh, that qualify under extreme exploitation, so that means labor trafficking, sex trafficking, forced labor, child labor, bonded labor, state-mandated forced labor, and forced marriage. Um, so today I have the honor of being joined by some incredible panelists, and we are here to talk about the intersection of authoritarian regimes and modern slavery, because these two things are both systems that impede personal freedoms. Um, And we think it's really important to highlight both the history and where we're at, and how we've gotten to this place. Um, So I will be the moderator today, and uh, we'll take you through a bit of discussion, and then we'll try to have a few minutes for Q&A, but if we don't get those few minutes, you can always talk to us afterwards. Uh, So with that, I'm going to hand off to each of the panelists to introduce themselves, Um, and I'm going to start with Jessie Brenner, who is on screen, uh, to Mm. introduce herself. Hi, Jessie. Hey, Amy.
2: Thank you so much. I hope you all can hear me okay. I'm so sorry um, that I'm not there in person, in part because I'd much rather you see my face at its normal size and not at (laughs) this giant size. (laughs) Um, But I unfortunately um, am and stuck in Iceland, not the worst place to be stuck, definitely, but close, so close and yet far. Um, so I'm Jesse Brunner. I'm the Associate Director um, and Director of Human Trafficking Research at the Center for Human Rights and International Justice at Stanford University. Um, I've been researching uh, issues related to those you just highlighted, Amy, Human Trafficking, Modern Slavery severe labor exploitation for about a decade. And I was really initially drawn into this space um, to better understand conversations around the lack of data that we had to understand the problem. Um, And that really helped me understand that, that a lot of the time Um, It was more that we weren't asking the right questions as a field um, as much as we didn't have the necessary information to answer those questions. Um, So I come at this work with a pretty interdisciplinary background. I actually started as a journalist um, and then did my graduate work at Stanford in international policy. So I bring a lot of broad social sciences. Um, And really, I consider myself a generalist who's striving to make connections across disparate disciplines um, and different areas of expertise. So I've long been engaged with the international anti-trafficking community at a policy level, um, including doing research in various parts of Southeast Asia and Brazil, um, and really just trying to understand how this kind of exploitation plays out um, in different places and how different governments, um, civil society organizations, private sectors, et cetera try to handle it. And with that, I'll kick it to the next panelist.
1: Great. Thank you so much, Jesse. And if I can pass over to Filmon.
3: Hi. um, My name is Filmon Debru. I'm an Eritrean refugee who lives in Germany currently. Uh, By profession, I am um, a software developer, but given the opportunity, I would invest my time to oppose the dictatorial regime we have through interviews and protests and hope and work to the, yeah, the day we get rid of this regime, the regime in Eritrea. Great.
1: thank you so much, Thelma. And Leonardo.
4: Well, uh, good afternoon everybody. I'm glad to be here. My name is Leonardo Sakamoto, I'm a journalist, I'm a political scientist, I'm Professor of Journalism in the Catholic University of Sao Paulo, Brazil. I'm Brazilian. Look, don't look like, but I'm Brazilian. <laughs> <laughs> but who is Brazilian? Brazilian doesn't look like, like Brazilian. And, um, oh, so sorry. Um, well, I'm the General Director of the NGO Report Brazil that was founded in 2001 by investigative journalists and... Uh, Our specialty is tracking down supply chains, is discover who is responsible for slave labour and human trafficking. Since 2001, we we tracked more than 2,000 supply chains showing that goods produced with slavery, human trafficking, environmental damage, traditional community attacks, is directly connected with the national and international market. And uh, I, between 2014 and 2020, I was trustee on the board of the United Nations Fund for Contemporary Forms of Slavery. Uh, just um, I, I, talking about slavery, it's interesting to say that uh, Brazil uh, is considered, was considered one of the uh, reference in the fight against slavery worldwide. We released the Brazilian government. The task forces of the Brazilian government released more than fifty-eight thousand workers since 1995. I say I said was because <laughs> now we are under the government of uh, President Jair Bolsonaro. I believe that you you heard this name several times. He's destroying the future of everybody, and uh, um, this is uh, and this is complicated because he's changing. The, 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 this uh, proeminence that Brazil had in the fight against slavery, not the fight against slavery just, but the environment and so on. And uh, now we are facing tough times.
1: Thank you so much. Uh, thank you everyone for introducing yourselves. Um, so I want to start us out with more of a, a big picture, and I want to start by asking you a question, Jesse. Um, so with your researcher hat on, when we look across the world and across history, I'd love to hear from you what the relationship is between authoritarian regimes and modern slavery. And also, how can authoritarianism encourage or likewise inhibit attempts at addressing human trafficking and forced labor?
2: Thanks, Amy. So um, when I hear this question, I think a lot about what are the elements that really define and foster authoritarianism? And how do those map on to what we believe to be the drivers of modern slavery? slavery and similar forms of exploitation. So um, sort of the list that I come up with um, that I think is pretty well agreed on is usually intense civil or interstate conflict, low uh, economic development or GDP, weak institutions, high levels of corruption, um, and restrictions on press and or weakened civil society. So if we then look at the top 10 countries with regard to prevalence of modern slavery, according to the latest statistics from Walk Free, um, we will note that these are all authoritarian regimes. We have places like North Korea, Central African Republic, Mauritania, Pakistan, Cambodia, Iran, etc. cetera. Um, so the, the other thing we note about these places, though, in addition to them being authoritarian, is that they're also largely marked by civil conflict. Um, so it's not surprising that in the case of conflict, we're going to see other challenges emerge when you have such a disruption to or maybe even a complete dismantling of the rule of law, as well as maybe physical damage to critical infrastructure, limited access to education, healthcare, food and water, etc. cetera. Similarly, um, when we try to understand what are seen as the drivers or push push and pull factors of human trafficking and similar exploitation we see a lot of these same issues, corruption, poverty, conflict. Um, And so it really makes sense that we see a connection there between authoritarianism and and this exploitation. Um, For example, we see these conditions coming together in especially devastating ways in places like Eritrea, which I'm sure Filmon will discuss in more detail shortly. Um, Eritrea happens to rank very low, um, if not the lowest on various sort of rankings of democratic governments. Um, But obviously, not all those conditions are going to be met in the case of every autocracy. We have notably the wealthy Gulf states, like Saudi Arabia and Qatar, um, that don't suffer from um, the low GDP issue, um, but still have significant issues with with human trafficking. We also might have authoritarian or authoritarian-leaning states that have very strong government institutions um, but it's really just a matter of what leadership wants to prioritize and what um, issues they're putting using their political will towards combating. Um, so, I mean, strong, strong um, governments can actually uh, create a lot of problems, say, in really limiting migration in ways that is discriminatory or makes it difficult to find safe working conditions. Again, restricting the press or surveilling their citizenry. Um, This can can go all the way into sort of state-imposed forced labor, as we see prominently in places like North Korea and China. Um, um, We've heard a lot, I think, lately in the international community about the situation of the Uyghurs in Xinjiang, for example. Um, But likewise, if we look at China, we've seen how, in some ways, those strong institutions that the West might consider normatively weak um, have actually proven functionally strong with regard to, say, um, encouraging economic development, which has lifted millions of people out of poverty, um, which we could see as positive in discouraging modern slavery, but at the same time, again, can be used in ways that are very repressive to the population, um, such as such as really de- um, heavy deprivations of privacy uh, related to surveillance, which then affects people's access to services. Um, similarly, in a place like Cambodia, we can have really effective anti-trafficking advocates high up in the government, such as um, with the the head of the Ministry of the Interior now, but unfortunately, the linkage, her linkage to the government of Hun Sen means that civil society engagement on these issues with the government is really limited out of fear um, of of working uh, alongside that very repressive government, especially if it touches really hot-button issues, such as um, land reform or land use. So I know the Human Rights Foundation has looked at this correlation, um, uh, this relationship between authoritarianism and trafficking by analyzing the US government's annual TIP report um, and noting that those that rank well, so tier one countries, have democratic governments most of the time, and conversely, um, those that rank lowest are more likely to be authoritarianism. And again, that linkage definitely makes sense, but I think it has more to do with vulnerability to trafficking than prevalence of trafficking. So when I looked at those numbers that I mentioned, the prevalence numbers from Walk Free as well as their vulnerability indices, um, and this is Walk Free and ILO I should note, as well as their vulnerability indices and put those against rankings on democracy from organizations like Freedom House or um, VDEM, uh, um, you can see that there's actually a stronger correlation between vulnerability scores Um, than there is between prevalence. And so that's why I think we see that intersection between the push factors um, of authoritarianism and trafficking. And just to sort of summarize, I think it's important to think about how each of those those things that we see are limited in authoritarian states could act as checks um, on curbing the issue of trafficking if they were allowed. So freedom of the press, for example, I think a lot of people were really compelled by the series of reports that came out in 2015 about forced labor in fisheries and shrimp processing in particular, and that really galvanized a lot of movement and attention across governments and the private sector towards combating these issues, for example. So that's where we see if press freedom is limited, we're going to also have limits to how um, we can combat trafficking. Similarly, um, limitations on civil society. These are key actors, um, people like those on the stage now, who are holding governments accountable um, for filling gaps in social services that act as protective factors um, towards populations and ensure that there's a multiplicity of services available for survivors, for example. Um, Again, where there's conflict, we touched on this before, that creates chaos, limitations to bureaucracy. Um, There there certainly are gonna be in and out Groups most likely, um, and that can really, uh, when those things aren't curbed, then that can really encourage the kinds of exploitation we see. Um, with low GDP or weak institutions, we have again those lack of lack of social services or protective factors that can really work to combat inequ- um, inequities across society. And obviously, if people have better economic opportunities where they are, um, they can stay there and work, hopefully, in safer um, conditions in a comfortable environment near their families, um, where they're not needing to um, to ch- battle uncertainties around social norms, et cetera. And then, obviously, with corruption, this is a huge one. Um, we can have the most excellent counter-trafficking policies, but if the day-to-day operations are not are not mirroring those policies, um, which is always going to be a challenge because there's money to be made, um, then we're going to continue to see these problems.
1: Amazing! Thank you so much, Jesse, for taking us through. Um, I think <laughs> the broadest uh, question that we have really making those linkages between how authoritarianism. Uh, really encourages modern slavery and how those vulnerabilities are really uh, created and and given given life in authoritarian regimes, whether or not the modern slavery uh, starts to pick up. So I'd like to take us from the bigger picture down to a more personal experience. Um, and Philmon, I'd love if you could tell us a bit about your experience and <laughs> the role of the Eritrean government in exploiting its citizens.
3: Um. Yeah, perhaps to explain this um, and even to explain the cause, the population we are to blame partly because we gave this government, this regime in the beginning blind trust and blind loyalty since the same party that brought independence after 100 years of colonization. This guy, Issa Afurki, was not seen as a person, he was seen as a hero, as an angel like God sent from the sky. So whatever he did was deemed to be the right thing to do. There were signs in the beginning that people could have woken up from, but we could not imagine that he could even turn up a dictator one day. So when this forced labor, um, in the beginning they called it War Free Warsai Kalo, or let's call it National Service. When it started, it was for a limited period of time. And what you did was, after military training, your work was usually helping parents of martyrs that fell during the War of Independence, um, or irrigation ones that would help against erosion, or building bridges for your nation. But using the war with Ethiopia as an excuse, this was extended indefinitely and types of activities you do went from something noble into something, I would call it enriching a few individuals. Like you would work on some rich person's farm. That person certainly does not need help in his farm. You would work in the gold mines. You would build homes for someone you don't know. A person that can afford a villa does not really need free labor. And with this, they have full control in the country, and there is nothing you can do about it. If you try, you will follow the lead of those who went before you. The country is filled more with underground prisons than schools. Most of the time, let alone knowing if a person is alive or dead, you don't, you don't even know which prison he went to initially, let alone after. And with this, they managed to exploit the entire nation's um, man wealth without even hope for a change from within because they have been also systematically destroying the educational system because they do not want an educated person. What they want is a sir-yes-sir type of man, a blank shell of a person that needs guidance from above, a hierarchical guidance just to do basic daily activities. To some extent, what scares me is that they have been succeeding in this.
1: Thank you for that. That's really powerful. And I think that underscoring of the amount of fear and control and how that plays into maintaining maintaining control of individuals, maintaining control of an entire nation um, through fear of all of the underground prisons, through fear of what happens to you. Um, And that's that's what we know to be true of slavery that we've learned about the transatlantic slave trade or any of the slavery that's uh, persisted into today that has its links into that. Um, So thank you for sharing that. Um, Leonardo, we'd love to hear from you um, about the authoritarianism, the legacy of authoritarianism um, that lingers even after a shift to democracy. So, Brazil transitioned to democracy uh, in the mid 1980s. And yeah, I'd love to hear what the legacy is of authoritarianism, of forced labor in your country.
4: Oh, thank you for the question. Uh, I will follow the script because I talk so much, and then four minutes will not enough to to answer that. And uh, well, sorry for that. But it's impossible to understand the violence involved in the process of enslavement of rural workers in Brazilian Amazon without understanding the role of military dictator, dictatorship that ruled the country between 1964 and 1985. Forced labor was widely used as an instrument for the occupation of the Amazon in a effort led by economic and political powers at that time. Although there are no official figures, researchers estimate that up to half a million workers were subjected to debit bondage in, in that period there in Amazon. The military dictatorship justified its actions by claiming that if Amazon were not occupied, the region would be transformed into an independent country by the invasion of rich nations. This same paranoia is reiterated today by President Jair Bolsonaro, who considered himself a direct heir to the dictatorship period. In truth, the dictatorship... Uh, wanted to use her capital and ally in the 1964 Coupe d'État to explore the region. In order to do so, it needed first to ensure that cheap labor was available there. Therefore, Brazilian authoritarian government implemented a policy to deliberate it, provoke a migratory flow into the area, into Amazon. The working, the working poor were, were told that a new Eldorado was be found in the middle of the jungle only to become cheap labor for the large farms and large plants and large mineral extractive projects. In fact. When this new workforce arrived, they were placed in small settlements without any support to produce, leaving them no option but work for other people, sometimes for free. During the dictatorship, the government systematically censored slave labor complaints, of which there were many. In the 1970s, the Catholic Church managed to bring accusations here to Europe about slavery on a farm belonging to the German company Volkswagen in in the South Amazon. This was the first case of slavery in Brazil that managed to break through the censorship and gain international repercussion. This standard of behavior prevalent in the dictatorship continues this day, not only in the Amazon, but in also the rest of the country. There is an anachronistic portion of rural producers with strong representation in Brazilian parliament that still dominated their region's politics. As a result, they were largely free to act in any way they see fit to protect their interests. For example, I have interviewed some workers over a course of a rescue operation in Amazon some years ago. They said to me they have been living in a settlement, but because the government never provided resources and infrastructure, the solution was to seek work in deforestation on a farm where they subsequently been enslaved. The violent model provided by the dictatorship where no decision was ever questioned has been followed for decades in Amazon. There, were, there are stories of workers who were afraid to flee the farms and report the slavery to local police because policemen working for the farms would bring the fugitive back. Today, this violence is felt through the blurring in the line between public and private spheres in the region of Amazon to ensure the rights of big business and to restrict those of workers.
1: Thank you so much for that. And that um, really speaks to the linkage between of profit for companies, for, for the private sector, also for political regimes, and how that uh, plays a part of, plays its part in the violence and the force um, that's used to get people to, um, to work for them for free uh, in order to maintain that profit. Um, So Jesse, forced labor is by no means unique to authoritarian countries. And I'd love to hear from you, why is it and in what ways do we likewise see modern slavery occurring in democratic countries?
2: Thanks, Amy. Um, I think this question really forces us to remember that the issues that we're talking about um, revolve around inequities in power structures, um, meaning that certain groups of people or choosing to wield their position of authority or power in a way that abuses or exploits another person's rights and freedoms. And those power structures are not just political. They can be social, cultural, religious, economic, et cetera. Um, We must also remember that the proliferation of democracy across the globe, seen as a more legitimate and representative form of government, Um, excuse me, has in a lot of cases not been accompanied by meaningful efforts to actually tackle the challenges that it takes to be a democratic country, such as those tensions between equality and liberty, um, the tyranny of the majority, and just sort of the general overwhelm of the political process that can take place amongst the populace, whether that's genuine or manufactured. Um, And I think as Leonardo really um, perfectly encapsulated, when countries transition from authoritarianism towards democracy, that process is very complicated and often prolonged and marked by ebbs and flows of progress and backsliding. And I think we've seen a number of examples of that over the last few years. The US is certainly not an exception here. Um, But we look to places like Myanmar, Ethiopia, or Afghanistan, for example, um, which I think a lot of folks have been thinking about particularly recently. Um, But I'd like to draw on a quote here from W.B. Du Bois, uh, who reminded us that, quote, a system cannot fail those it was never meant to protect. And I realize that the premise of this panel is when systems fail. But I also think we need to consider the idea of what happens when systems work, but those systems enshrine discriminatory policies that can facilitate or even encourage various forms of modern slavery, um, including forced labor. And I'd really like to just shout shout out Freedom Fund, um, Amy, and I also saw your colleague Nick there um, earlier, um, because I think you as an organization are really doing work that looks at those systems that allow um, slavery to persist and thrive. But here at the moment, I'm thinking about countries that often score highest on some of those um, rankings I mentioned earlier in terms of consolidated liberal democracies and lowest with regard to prevalence of trafficking or vulnerability to modern slavery. Um, These are generally wealthy countries marked by generally peace and strong institutions, relatively free free press, and a vibrant civil society. Uh, strong political will, high levels of resources, et cetera, including to respond to modern slavery. But the reality is that the prevalence of modern slavery in these highly developed, high-income countries is higher than I think we previously believed. And this is where we really get back to those power structures. Um, Perhaps it's not the government in the ways we discussed earlier when talking about authoritarian regimes, but it could certainly be argued that the allegiances that we see between, say, industry, um, and politics via billions of dollars spent annually on lobbying, um, for example, for example, is simply a higher form of corruption um, that we can't necessarily divorce from these realities of exploitation. Um, I'm thinking here, how might we compare the outsourcing of electronics below the cost of production to factories in Malaysia, Um, where they can't possibly afford uh, safe working conditions and decent wages when you're not even paying the full cost that it takes to produce a good, Um, how does that compare with the case of, say, a police officer in Cambodia who accepts a kickback from a local criminal network to turn a blind eye to a situation of exploitation of this sort? Um, Though, to be honest, I've seen plenty of cases in Cambodia where the actual issue is that police officers have to pay for their own fuel. Um, in order to do investigations, which is obviously a large disincentive for chasing down complex cases. Um, so I think we need to, to take these kinds of things into consideration. Um, I mentioned the Uyghurs in China earlier, but the forced labor that the Uyghurs have been linked to um, is in supply chains of the most prominent brands in the world. And I think Leonardo made this point great um, in the case of, of the Brazilian Amazon and exploitation there. But we see... Um, we see you know, goods produced by Uyghur forced labor um, being sold by companies like Adidas, Amazon, um, H and M, Coca Cola, um, and obviously we we don't have to look far when we wonder where these companies and most of their consumers are based. Um, and this ties a lot into the work that me and my colleagues um, with the Restructure Lab have been doing over the past several years, where we really try to look at key trends. Um, that are especially apparent in the United States, but um, elsewhere in the global economy as well, that really ensure, all but ensure, that exploitation is a feature, not a bug, of the modern economy. So we think of the financialization of the economy, for example, um, which means that global economic activity is increasingly centered on financial activities such as stock buybacks, um, as opposed to productive activities that might ensure uh, fair wages for workers or safe working environments, we see an uptick, a significant uptick in market concentration um, and troubling limitations on labor organizing, for example. Um, and as I already mentioned in the example, there's a lot more outsourcing and subcontracting happening. And when we shift production of goods to geographies that are known to have weaker legal frameworks, lower wages, and poor enforcement of labor standards. um, That basically is just opening up access to new populations of workers that are easily exploited and thus exacerbates the problems that we're talking about today. Just because we're moving the problem offshore doesn't make any of the actors in that chain, including um, people like me as a consumer, any less complicit. And then of course, we can't ignore history. Um, uh, You mentioned, Amy, for example, the transatlantic slave trade. Um, obviously, in the U.S., we, we celebrate often a lot of our founding virtues of democracy and equality and freedom, um, but it's no news to anyone here. I don't think that those benefits, uh, when, they were, when they were proclaimed, um, were meant really to only extend to a few privileged folks. And despite significant legal progress, and I don't want to undermine that, it is significant, with regards to, say, civil rights for women and people of color or other minoritized populations, At each each step in our history, we've often still found and find ways to justify continued unequal treatment. For example, the abolition of slavery that came with the 13th Amendment to our Constitution made an exception for prison labor, which then devolved into prison privatization and convict leasing, which is just a new form of capitalizing the human body to the benefit not only of private companies such as railroads and mines, but the state itself. Um, so in the case of, of pr- prison lease, convict leasing, states were making money off this. For example, the state of Tennessee once made 10% of its state budget from the practice. Um, maybe today this is turned into other forms of exploitation, such as research that shows that... Um, Uh, Communities uh, that are located near highly pollutant factories, for example, are much more likely to be poor and have a much higher concentration of people of color um, and a much lower life expectancy, in in numbers of years lower. Um, So in a lot of ways, we're essentially still taking people's time and health um, so that someone else can make money. And I just think that this kind of abuse would simply not be possible if we somehow still didn't see others as less human and thus exploitable. Um, McKinney Chisholm-Stryker and Catherine Chan, I think, really capture this final point well in a book they released as editors last year on the historical roots of trafficking, in which they reminded us that the full problem of, of modern slavery and trafficking includes an ignorance of foul truths, an unwillingness of those with privilege and power to openly confront national and individual complicity in this reality and a refusal to be disquieted by uncomfortable change. Thanks.
1: Thank you so much, Jessie. Um There's so many things that I wanna underscore in what you said, uh, but a part of what I will underscore not being able to hit on all of them is again, that point that you made that I think is so poignant about what about when systems do exactly what they're meant to do? What about when they work and what if they were built to have people enslaved? What if they were built to make sure that there are people with vulnerabilities always in order to exploit, in order for folks to, um, in order for the state or in order for private companies to profit? And then the other thing that I just want to highlight is just the point around extended supply chains. Um, and that being one of the systems that is incredibly hard to actually dig down into and really figure out where is their exploitation happening and how do we solve for it, um, especially where there's a lack of political will that wants to make that change. Thank you for that. Um, so moving over to Filmon, Eritrea remains a dictatorship, as as you've talked about. Um, can you tell us? more about how forced labor fits in with other oppressive tactics used by the government to control the population? And also for those of you who flee, what sort of risks do you face?
3: Okay. um, Perhaps something that I also wanted to mention um, is also part of the labor force is the outside factor, the enablers. It's one thing to have a dictator that doesn't care about his people. And then you have these foreign companies that hail from democratic countries with democratic values who exploit this situation knowing full well this dictator doesn't care about these people and yet still participate. They always have this excuse that we do pay our employees, but as long as that employee lives and breathes in Eritrea, you can give him a sack full of gold. It will just take a few meters for him to be forced to give it up. you don't really need to have research to know what's happening in Eritrea. Right now it's an open secret. Um, when it comes how he controls people, even in diaspora, people are not completely free, because you usually have someone back home. One use um, critical point they use is the control of the embassies. Normally, any citizen of any nation, you need your passport, you just go to your embassy, fill out a form, you get your passport because it's sur- supposed to serve you. In our case, it's different. In our case, it's a nightmare. I, I would never do that. I would never set foot in an Eritrean embassy as long as it's controlled by this regime. The first thing they do is they make you pay 2% of whatever income or imagined income that you had ever since you left the country. Now, this is hard by itself, but it's not even as bad as the next one. The next one is that you need to sign a false confession before you even ask anything. And that false confession is that you state that you are a criminal, that you have committed a crime by living in Eritrea the way you did, and anytime it sees fit that this regime will punish you in whatever way they want, and you sign it. Even if they manage to kidnap you and take you away back to Eritrea, even in a court of law, they can still say that you signed this willingly. And third, which is even more dangerous for us, is that you have to provide collateral. Collateral not in a sense of money or property, but rather since they cannot completely control you here, they need a person as collateral back home. So say you need a document that a German, a French, or a Swedish government demands from you, you go to the embassy, you give some, someone's name, and that person needs to show up and say, yes, I'm the guarantee. And This is in a way, not just then, even for the future, that you not misstape from whatever uh, policies they have so that you can never speak out against them. This is a way to control you. Once you go into this, then you're done. You're part of the circle, even though you're physically outside of the country.
1: Thank you so much for that. And I think the, the things that I really want to uplift in what you said um, are firstly the enablers, the outside forces, um, which which gets to the second point of the fact that there's still so much control and so much fear even after you get out of this situation, even after you flee um, from from the oppressive government that you still have to be in fear of your life and of your loved ones' lives, and how much that does to control what you're able to do, how you're able to speak, um, and how much that fear is necessary in order for them to continue and in order for the narrative to not shift, I suppose for for the outside individuals, uh, for. An, people who get out, and also for private actors, Um, because if you're not allowed to speak up, then then private actors can't be held accountable, necessarily. Um, That's really powerful. Um, So we've been focusing a lot on the role of the state so far, and as we started to just talk about, we know that when it comes to modern slavery, a majority of exploitation happens in the private sector, so including in global supply chains. So, Leonardo, based on your experience as a journalist, uh, what is the role of the private sector in propping up or reinforcing authoritarian regimes, and how does this affect human rights abuses carried out by companies?
4: Well, <laughs> um, talking of, uh, taking the example of Brazil, in the case of, uh, of my country, the 1964 coup d'État took place by the militaries, militaries, but with strong support of businessmen uh, who were unsatisfied with government projects that aimed to meet demands of peasants and workers that times during the 60s. Once the coup-, the coup was successful, this group not only obtained the freedom to carry out its agenda in both legislative and executive powers, but it also managed to repress unions and civil society organizations. Many workers' leaders were silenced through imprisonment, torture, exile, or assassinations. It's no, it's no wonder that former President Lula da Silva's rise to prominence on the national stage begins to take shape when, then still a union leader, he leads a major workers' strike in the state of Sao Paulo, the richest in the country, in 1980 resulting in his arrest by the dictatorship. It's worth remembering that in authoritarian regime, labor rights are a matter for the police and not for unions. History found a way of repeating itself in 2018 when sectors of the economy, namely a portion of the agribusiness and the finance sector, expressed open support for them For then, presidential candidate Jair Bolsonaro, who presented a plan to reduce environmental and labor rights and cut out measures that punish slave labor practice. No, I'm not kidding. I stopped the reading. It's not kidding. It's explicitly stated in the plan of government to reduce the protection of slave labor, the, the fight against slave labor. For Minister of, uh, of the Economy, Bolsonaro Piquet Paulo Guedes is a man who has expressed admiration for the Chilean dictatorship under General Augusto Pinochet, praising the ultra-liberal policies that were implemented in the South American neighborhood of Brazil at that time. Needless to say, the general only managed to carry out its agenda because of the dictatorial regime that was in place, one of the most violent in the region has experienced this alliance with economic power bear fruits even without the breakdown of democracy with dictator wannabe politicians. In Brazil, the current government has worked with business representatives in Congress to weaken environmental and labor laws, regulations, and labor and environmental inspection. Today, Amazon is facing records of burns and deforestation, as everybody here is following in the social media. Of the more than 2,000 supply chains that we have tracked since 2001 at Reporter Brazil, most of them are connected to large companies inside and outside the country, which is not surprising given that these are commodities that are consumed all over the world. A great number of these companies sue us or threaten us for revealing the slave labor. I have death threats against me. Sometimes I need police protection in Brazil. Um, because we are denouncing that the, the product, the goods that they use and sell are contaminated with slavery, with environmental damage, with, with indigenous killings, and so on. Other companies, however, are grateful because since the risk management that our information allows can ensure that they make decisions to correct the problems. The bottom line is that fixing these issues incurs significant costs. It means investing money to change practices. And there are companies that simply do the math and find it cheaper to support bad governments, what is business as usual, and nothing changes. Even because at the end of the day in Brazil slavery is not a matter of evilness, but a matter of seeking easy profits on a church of competitiveness.
1: Thank you so much for that. That also continues to underscore the role of both private corporations and authoritarian regimes in making sure that forced labor can continue to happen for profit. Um, I was just really struck by the comment that you made about being sued for revealing slave labor and having death threats by companies because of that revealing. I think we live in a time where we think more people are going towards uh, transparency. People want, like consumers want to, make sure that we're buying products that aren't from forced labor, and we think that companies will move in that direction a little bit more easily because so many consumers want that. But to hear that that is continuing to happen, those lawsuits and those threats just reminds me, reminds us of how real the desire is to have cheaper labor, cheaper goods, um, and doing anything to get that. So the last question that is for all of you as we wrap up. Um, and this is just a, a quick <laughs> a quick round of answers. Um, I'd just like you to answer one, one question, which is, what is one thing that the international community can do to address forced labor in authoritarian regimes? And I'll start with you, Jesse.
2: Thanks, Amy. I think at a normative level, we really need a shift in how This problem is conceptualized moving from the idea that it's bad actors operating in specific conditions to one in which we're looking at broader systems of discrimination, marginalization, and abuse. Likewise, how it's talked about moving away from heavily extrapolated statistics and sensationalized stories towards more nuanced, localized, contextualized anti-trafficking approaches based on geography, demography, economic sector, et cetera. Um, and then of course, I think there's a lot we can do and sort of how we vote at the polls and with our wallets as consumers or maybe even shareholders. Um, so those that can, I think advocating in their home governments to really um, push for mandatory human rights due diligence policies for companies that operate in their jurisdiction, um, as well as addressing anti-competitive behavior through perhaps antitrust reform and financial market regulation. Um, if you have money invested in the stock market, anywhere, um, please push on your investment firms to to think about how to establish reliable and comparable metrics for how we actually evaluate companies across social issues and set clear standards for where and how they operate with stringent clauses around forced labor based on a solid understanding of the risks that align with the current research. Um, And I'll pass it back.
1: Thanks. Thank you so much, Jesse and Philmon.
3: In general, I would say um, due diligence to understand that this forced labor does not usually happen the way you expect it. It can always be camouflaged by a normal process of business, but in reality, if you dig down down enough, you will find the slavery. Um, But in case of Eritrea, complete and full, break of communication, that's what I, any kind of financial commitment in Eritrea, uh, especially beginning with the corporations. Um, and even those educational funds that come, the majority of it will just end up in someone's pocket. An actual student or university student will probably see percentage of that. It's basically enabling the regime to exist. Well, just the same we had with COVID-related lockdown. Just lock the entire country down. No contact. That is the only way we can get rid of this regime,
4: in my opinion, I would say.
1: Thank you for that, it's powerful. And Leonardo?
4: Well, first, uh, if slave labor is global and the trade of goods from slave labor is immediate, the fight against slave labor must be global and immediate too. International pressure, mainly from investors, on companies and governments, is what yields results in Brazil today. And if we can move forward from a voluntary treat to a binding treat on business and human rights inside the United Nations, even better. At least eradicating slave labor and defending the future of Earth depends on how interested developed countries demand beneficiaries of the global economic system, are in considerably reducing poverty in poor countries. This not depends only on charity, but on the change in the business as usual way. Enslaving the environment and labor on the world's periphery and hiding these crimes in complex global production networks has never been acceptable, but now it can be exposed by civil society and the press. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much. Um, we have, I think, 30 seconds. So uh, I'm going to just close us out and ask that. Um, if folks do have questions to come approach us after, sorry, you won't be able to ask Jesse, but we can pass on the question and connect you. But I just want to say a huge thank you to each panelist sitting here. Um, it really is an honor to be sitting with you. And I've learned so much during the session, and I'm just really grateful your time for your time, and thank you, everyone, for joining. Um, We really appreciate the participation.